Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. I appreciate the committee's confidence. And maybe they just picked someone who is dumb enough to agree <laughs> to a subject like this. <clears throat> this is a huge subject. Um, as I was trying to bring it all together, it's, it was just all over, and I see Gerald shaking his head, he understands, and trying to bring it down into something that I can put in an organized way. Um, I like to have uh, my points laid out that you can follow. I'm sorry that's not going to happen today. It's still out there, and I'm, I, I think I brought it in somewhat. But it's a big subject. Unlike other religions, like maybe Islam, where the Quran is only the true Quran in its original language, the Christian Bible is and should be translated into whatever language is necessary for the gospel to come to God's, to anybody to become God's people. And I'm thankful for that. It should be, can and should be translated into the common language for everyone. Just to clarify something, I'm going to be using the term version and translation somewhat interchangeably here. I know if, if we're going to nitpick, there's a difference. But just for the sake of this topic here, in a lot of cases, translation and version I'll be using somewhat interchangeably. In any language that the Bible has been translated into, we believe that it is still the Word of God. And this topic will be addressing the translation into the English language, which when you think of Bible translation, that's what you think of. That's a small window of what translation is. The world is a lot bigger than English-speaking people. But I'll be referring to the English language here. Matthew 6, 9 through 13 says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I'm now going to read that in another translation. With a God like you loving us, who can pray? You can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what is best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You are in charge. You can do anything you want. You are a blazing beauty. Yes, yes, yes. Some of you may have been more comfortable with that last one than others. Some of your blood pressure may be up. I'm not trying to make light of the Lord's Prayer in any way, but I'm trying to show you that there is a need for balance in Bible translations. To me, the last one looks like he got the version mixed up with his Valentine's Day card to his wife, possibly. I'm not sure. Never before 
have we had so many versions available to us. They range from very literal, which you heard. They are also very loose, which you also heard. How many of you have the Lord's Prayer memorized? Raise your hand. All right. How many have you? How many of you have it memorized in a version other than the King James? Raise your hand. Okay. I don't see any. I didn't expect to see any. This is not a three-point topic, so I'm not sure how long we'll be here. first question I have is why translation? A general question, why translation? The Bible needs to be translated because it is the living Word of God. Think about the living Word of God. You can have any other book and you can read it and you can get something from it. The Bible is the living Word of God. The same words in that book can nurture a brand new believer and they can speak to someone who's been a Christian for 50 years. In a a different way, it's a living book. That book needs to be translated for everyone to understand, to hear and to understand. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. God is not willing that any should perish. It convicts, it discerns the thoughts and the intents of our heart. That is the living word of God. It needs to be translated so we can understand. The Bible was written in three main languages, Hebrew, the language of the Jews. Aramaic, which was the language probably after the captivity, and Greek. So unless you're fluent in any of those, you will need a translation of the Bible. What's the history of translation? I'm going to go through a little bit of the history, just we'll be doubling up a little bit on what was covered on some of the other messages today. So... Follow along with me. Um, There are hundreds, maybe thousands, of different translations and manuscripts of the Bible down through the centuries. Old and New Testament alike that could be looked at. I'm only going to look at a few, just a handful of probably the most well-known and the most influential uh, translations that have come to English-speaking people, well, not all English-speaking people, but to through translation that have had the greatest impact. So as I go through this, some of you may say, well, you missed this one or you missed this one. You're right, I did. I'm, I'm not nearly getting a fraction of them, but I'm looking at a few of the what I consider the most notable translations. Before we do that, I want to clarify where translations come from, and I, under, I know this is really simplifying it, but I need it simplified for myself. So for the Old Testament, the texts that, the, that, that people look at for the Old Testament texts primarily are the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, or the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. That's for the Old Testament. For the New Testament, there are, again, two main text families, I call it, because it's not just a single text, but text families. The Byzantine text, also known as the majority text, That's mostly Greek translations of the New Testament. This has the largest number of surviving manuscripts today. It has the fewest inconsistencies within it. So those are positives. A negative is they're not very old. 
the oldest manuscript in the Byzantine text goes back to about the 10th century, give or take. So it's not really old. That is a text that the King James and several other translations are based on. The other is the Alexandrian text. It's a family, again, of mostly Greek New Testament manuscripts. There's relatively few compared to the Byzantine text. There's relatively few of these, and they do differ. There's a lot more variation within them. It's the basis for most modern translations. And when I say modern translations, I mean anything newer than King James. So it's the basis for most of those. They are much older. Some of them go back to the end of the first century. So they are much older. That's one positive thing about them. So the Septuagint, looking now at the history of translations, is probably the first well-known translation of the Bible, of the Old Testament, the Bible they had at that time. The Septuagint is the translation of Hebrew into Greek. Ptolemy Philadelphus was the second leader after Alexander the Great, ruling in Egypt. It was Alexander the Great, his successor. His kingdom was split into four. One of those went down to Egypt. It was Ptolemy I. Ptolemy Philadelphus was his son. And he was building and compiling a huge library, and he wanted the scriptures in Greek, which Alexander the Great had brought to the known world at that time. So he brought 12, I'm sorry, 72. This, this is debated whether this is legend or fact. I would tend to lean towards fact. Brought 72 rabbis from Jerusalem, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, down to Egypt to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. This happened roughly 250 years before Christ. So the Bible or scripture, was being translated long before the time of Christ. This is the first, what I consider, notable translation. Next we come to the Latin Vulgate. For 500 or 600 years, the Septuagint was a well-established authority, the basis for many translations. And in the 300s A.D., so we go from 250 B.C. to the 300s A.D., Jerome decided it's time for a new translation of the Bible into Latin. From Hebrew into Latin, a truly accurate translation. And I found this interesting. Luke Wayne says this. Remember, the Septuagint is firmly established as the authority of Scripture. Luke Wayne says this. Even the slightest variation between Jerome's translation and the Septuagint was met with deep scrutiny and tremendous hostility. Does that sound familiar? Over time, Jerome's text became known throughout Western Europe, at least, as the, as the most popular translation. And it remained there for the next thousand years or so until the 14th century. Now we go to English translations. The history of English Translations from the 600s AD to the 1200s AD. It's a, and I'm throwing these numbers around like it's not a lot of time. We're talking hundreds of years here. There were various portions of the Bible translated into English, but many times these ended up being more of a personal commentary of the translator than actually translating script. 
An example of this, in one of the translations, the translation of the account of the wedding at Cana, to translate the text itself, word for word, would take about 40 lines. This translation used up 800 lines. So there's a lot of additional things added during this time. Now we'll come to some names that you'll probably recognize. John Wycliffe, the first major translation of the Bible since the Vulgate, was John Wycliffe's translation in the late 1300s. And Wycliffe was a forerunner of the Reformation. He was 150, 200 years before the Reformation, but I consider him a forerunner because of his ideas. They were very much Reformation-minded. He he spoke a lot, taught a lot against the Roman Catholic Church, the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, and he planted that seed that, that soon blossomed into what is the Reformation. He believed that the Bible belonged to all people of all times, and because of this, he decided to translate the Bible into common English for common man to understand. So like I said, this mentality took root, and during the Reformation then, there were many other translations made into the languages of European countries. Like you've heard of Luther's German Bible. Some of those were, were come from this seed that, that Wycliffe planted. Another name you'll recognize is Tyndale, William Tyndale. He came along about 100 years after Wycliffe. We can think back 100 years. It's not that long in the scope of this. But he felt the need for another English translation. And why he felt that way is Wycliffe's Bible has been, had been translated from the Vulgate, not from the original Hebrew and Greek. He said, we've got to go back to the original. And you're seeing a pattern here. Over time, people would say, we've got to go back to the original and bring it out. And, and well, we can base it off of this. And then we have to go back to the original. That's one reason Tyndale decided to translate. The other one was, in that hundred years, the English language had evolved and Wycliffe's English was out of date. It didn't mean what it once meant. So that was in the early 1500s. Now we move into the 1600s and we meet the King James Version Bible, 1611. The King James, the King James Version was Authorized by King James, I'm not sure his motives were exactly right, but the product was. The motives that he had were to bring two political religious parties together. There were the Anglicans and there were the Puritans. The Anglicans were following the Bible called the Bishop's Bible, which was a slanted version, more of a political version, the Puritans had the Geneva Bible, which was translated by these people who had escaped from persecution to Geneva, and they translated the Bible into what they called the Geneva Bible. So it was trying to bring the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible together, and it was actually one of the Puritans' ideas. He said, let's get this, let's get it together. So King James was trying to leave a mark for himself in the world, and he said, that's a good idea. So, seven years and 47 scholars... They got together and they produced what is the King James Version, the 1611 version of the King James Bible. 
It is based off of the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, which to give them, in all fairness, they used it from both sides, the Tyndale Bible, and the Textus Receptus, which I didn't cover much. It's a Greek uh, New Testament compiled roughly 100 years before this by a man named Erasmus. So those are the four main texts they used in coming up with the King James Bible. It's a relatively young text that they used, but they used what they had available to them. The vast majority of the information they had was not older than the 10th century. There have been several revisions to the King James Version since 1611. How many of you have a King James Bible with you today? Most of you. All right. The version you have is probably the seventh revision to the King James Bible, revised by a man named Benjamin Blaney, 1769. It's probably the Bible you have. Now you're all looking. <laughs> he added 76 notes and over 30,000 marginal notes to this King James Bible, which some of the other subjects covered are nice. They're nice to have. It's where there's... It could be translated one way or another way. They'll, they'll put it in there. We aren't sure this is the other way that it could be translated. So that brings us to some of the translations that we have today. I'd like to look briefly at some translation methods. There's two main methods. The word-for-word method of translation or formal equivalence, thought-for-thought or dynamic equivalence. And then there's a third one that I think they just like big words because I don't. it's a combination of them called optimal equivalence. So basically, word-for-word, thought-for-thought, or a combination of the two is, is how Scripture is translated. So formal equivalence or word-for-word is a literal word-for-word translation. You get... A benefit of that is you get the tone, you get the expression of what the writer probably meant. A disadvantage sometimes is when you translate word for word from another language into English, it's nonsense. Michael Winger gives an example of that. In, in Matthew 1.18, it's talking about Mary uh, being pregnant with, with Jesus. And it's in the King James, it says she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And we understand what that means. If you would translate that literally, word for word, it would say, she was found to be having it in the belly. Not as meaningful in English. It may be made sense in Greek, but it doesn't mean that much in English. I'm thankful they didn't use word for word. Dynamic equivalence is thought for thought. Advantages of this are or what they're, they're willing to change the exact wording in order to preserve the exact meaning. It's easier to understand. The disadvantages are it's possible to miss things because you miss the tone or the expression with which the writer was writing because you're conveying the thought. Today we have more than 450 versions of the English Bible available to us today. 450 versions. In our setting, in our conservative Mennonite Anabaptist setting, those fall into two categories, all of those versions, 450 of them. 
King James, and everything else. (laughs) And you chuckle, but that's how it is. So why so many? Why so many versions of the Bible? And do we need more? Do we need more versions? I'd like to give you several reasons why there are so many versions of the English Bible available. And I don't like the first one, but it's a reality, and the fact is it's money. Money is a reason there are so many versions of the Bible. Publishing companies don't like to pay royalties to other companies to use their version of the Bible, so they come up with their own, and they can because the second reason for money is Bibles sell. You will not find them on a bestseller, probably won't find them on a bestseller list because they are way, way beyond the top bestseller that you find. The best that any other book could even hope for is a very distant second, which I guess is good. Bibles sell. And if someone's willing to come up with a truthful translation that sells and can minister to somebody, I I guess that's good. Uh, Another reason is language changes. An example of this is many, many words. One figure I came up with was 300 words in the King James Bible do not mean today what they meant when it was written. Language changes. So there's a need for more, more, uh, I'm going to use the word relevant. Uh, That doesn't quite fit because the Bible is relevant to us, but but more, uh, uh, that can apply to where our English language is. (coughs) The third reason is the discovery of new manuscripts. In 1611, roughly the oldest manuscript they have was from the 10th century. That's a thousand years after the time of Christ. And they did a tremendous job with what they have, with what they had. 1881, the revised version came out. They had 2,000 manuscripts, the oldest dating back to the 4th century. So they had a lot more and a lot older manuscripts available. Today, there are 20,000, if you look at the whole Bible, but 5,800, roughly 5,800 Greek manuscripts available that go back to the end of the first century. That's not even to 100 AD. So there's a lot more material available to either confirm or help the text that we that we have available to us. Fourth reason is new understanding of old languages. It wasn't until almost 1900 that scholars discovered the New Testament Greek was written in common Greek, the common language of Greek. Up until then, there were 500 words in the Bible that they had no meaning for. They didn't know what they meant. And I think Gerald mentioned it was known as a Holy Ghost Greek because they thought this was maybe language just just for the Bible, just the Holy Spirit gave it to the writers, and they didn't know what they meant. But they've discovered manuscripts since then that have given context and given meaning to what these words mean, and they can more accurately revise and translate versions in that way. So that's why we have so many. 
a few reasons why we have so many. Do we need more? It could be strongly argued both ways. I'm going to say yes. Um, language will change. Time, things, things will change and we will need, not tomorrow, not next week, not in 10 years, but we will at some point, unless the Lord returns, we will need updated, revised versions of the Bible. I think we have plenty right now. The world is changing, language is changing, there may be discoveries to shed more light on what we have. Just for your information, as of 2018, these are the top five most popular versions of the Bible. Number one is the NIV. Number two is the New Living. Number three is the King James. And those three kind of take turns being the top. But I think as of, eight, as of 2018, I don't know where it is now, but NIV was the top. Number four is the Christian Standard Version. Number five is the ESV, English Standard Version. So now where I stick my neck out, and maybe what you've been waiting for, is where do we find a balance in Bible translations? I mentioned earlier, there are two camps when it comes to these 450 versions of the Bible, the King James and roughly everything else. Those two camps. There are many reasons why people prefer the King James Version Bible. And I think number one is nostalgia. It's what you grew up with. It's what you learned as a child. It has respectful language. It has poetic nature, maybe easier to memorize. And it is a solid, reliable translation. Those four reasons I put in that order for a reason. And I know you're all trying to figure out where I stand on this. I'll tell you at the end, so don't, don't worry about it now. Some would say that modern translations, and again, modern, I mean anything newer than King James, are trying to, there's a conspiracy trying to erode our faith, the Christian faith. Beware of terms like corrupted. You hear terms like corrupted text. This version has comes from a corrupted text. Probably. It pro- they all probably do. But know what corrupted means. It doesn't mean corrupt like you think of it, sinful, wicked. It means there are variants within that text, like something as simple as spelling or an extra letter or, or words put together or, a, or punctuation or something extremely minor. So beware of terms like corrupted. When someone says, this version is corrupt, maybe, maybe not. Don't, don't take that as corrupt. Also, when weighing your pros and cons of a translation, is this good, is it reliable, should we or shouldn't we, don't base your judgment of a translation on what you're currently using. I'll get into that a little bit later. This 
is an emotional subject for many people. There's a head knowledge and there's a heart knowledge of translations and there's no way around that. It's an emotional subject. People will pick a side of this and it's probably King James or you fill in the blank over here. They'll pick one and then they will find facts or articles or books to support their position. I say people, and I, I fall into that, that trap. But these feelings and these attacks on a new translation are not a new thing. It's, it's happened all throughout history. As when one gets established and another one comes along, these exact same arguments that I hear, I say, against King James or, or whatever. Normally it's against King James. You don't usually, or the King James, it's attacking others. The other versions don't usually attack each other. It's usually coming from the King James camp. Those same arguments they use are not new. It's the same arguments that have been used all throughout history. There is, There are those who believe there's a widespread New Age conspiracy to remove the deity of Christ from many new modern versions. Some think that the ancient text, the Alexandrian text, was a conspiracy to remove the deity of Christ. This is just one example. And if you look at many new modern versions, the the deity of Christ is not as clear in some passages. So if you look at, for example, 1 John 5-7 is missing from a lot of new, totally missing. What are you basing that on? Missing from what? Well, from what the King James has. But then look at other passages, and many modern translations are much more clear than the King James on the deity of Christ in other places. So if there was a conspiracy, wouldn't wouldn't they remove all of it? Or at least most of it? As with any Bible study, you can't look at one verse or one passage and build a conclusion about your version based on that. Most times these conspiracy theories come from the King James Version against other versions. And as I'm listening to myself, it, it, I, I think I know where, where you think I stand, but I'll, I will clarify it. Um, the, the problem is, within the King James text, there are many additions. Or it may be a problem, maybe not, but many additions that were not part of the original text of the King James Version Bible. Some reasons or explanations for this, and Gerald covered some of those, are translation differences. The opinion or the discernment of the translator can play a part in this. One maybe was translating word for word. One was translating thought for thought. Maybe there's options. We could use this word or this word. Some of them will put the, the, the one they didn't use in the margin, a marginal note. Some won't. And so there's going to be some differences there. 
One nice thing that a lot of translators did, scribes throughout history have done, is put marginal notes as as a commentary of this is how it it could have been this way, it could be translated this way. And over time, some of those things worked their way into the text. If you look, don't look now, but in your King James Bible, there are in the marginal notes, in the margin, there are probably notes that says, a word in italics, which means it was added or pay attention, there's something to look at. There might be another word over there that says, or this. So take a look at that sometime. That's a nice, a, a nice thing they added. Another reason for differences or, or additions to some versions is a thing called harmonization. And it's where a scribe is writing. I'm going to use the Gospels for an example. He's writing from the Gospel of Matthew and he's copying it finishes that one, goes on to Mark or Luke, or he's copying Luke now, and he's copying, and he comes to the same account that he, he had in Matthew, and he says, well, this is, this is different. It, it doesn't, it's not worded exactly the same. This, the one before me must have missed it, and so he'll add, add in a little bit just to finish it off, to make it match the other gospel. It doesn't change the message at all, but it's a possibility. It, it happened. We know it happened. It's documented that it happened, and it's a possibility of how things got added to the text. Another one is the expansion of piety. I wish I could say I came up with these terms. I didn't. Expansion of piety is where someone is writing the, copying the text and they'll come up on the phrase, um, the Lord, the Lord. The original text would say that thou art the Lord. And they think, ah, that's not enough. God's name needs to be held in high esteem. So they say, thou art the Lord Jesus Christ. And they add that to the end. It doesn't change my faith. It, it says the same thing, but that's happened. Where they will add, add to the title of Jesus. It's an expansion of piety. Now the trouble is, we've got that. We know we have it. And it's fine. It's good. It's in there. It's fine. But some of the new translations don't have that. And we say, oh, they're trying to take something away because of what we're used to. Another reason is scribal errors. And again, this was covered a little bit earlier. If you were in your house, a dimly lit room, copying hour after hour after hour. You might skip a line. You might skip a word. You might mistranslate a word. You might change some letters. Not on purpose, not malicious intent. But scribal errors, I think, play a role in some variance within the text. It can be a little upsetting, though, to look back and think, this is the Bible, the Word of God, and there's... There's errors, there's mistakes. Don't let it shake your faith. People that are trying to shake your faith will give you these facts, and they're true. There are 400,000 variants within the texts used to translate the Bible. That is a true fact. That is true. 400,000 variants. And you think, what can we trust? But remember, a variant is a letter or a, a punctuation or 
99% of them, and I'm not just throwing that number out, I've read that multiple places, 99% of those 400,000 variants are little things like a letter or a punctuation or something that doesn't change it at all. There's 1% that is meaningful. It's a meaningful variant. But that has nothing to do with doctrine. It has nothing to do with our faith. And I see the hand of God through history in that, in maintaining the, the truth and the perfection of his word. So the more I study, the more knowledge I gain in this, the less conspiratorial I am. On the other hand, be aware, be alert for liberal bents within certain versions. They are there. So be alert to that. But I really don't believe that there is a widespread New Age conspiracy trying to undermine our faith. There are some liberal bents within certain versions, though. So a practical use of multiple versions. Is there a place for multiple versions? And what is a balanced view? I personally prefer the King James Version for many of the reasons I mentioned earlier. It's what I grew up with. As I'm studying for a message and I, I have a phrase and I'm not sure where it is, it's in the King James in my head. It's what I look up in the concordance. It's that word. It's what I can memorize. I find it very difficult. Actually, I haven't tried that much, but it's hard to memorize from other versions. King James is, I'm not sure if it's a word, but I'm going to make it one. Memorizable. To good, solid translation, we have the King James Version as the standard text in our church. So I, I prefer it. But I would encourage you, I use and I would encourage you to use, to wisely use other translations in your Bible study. The King James Version is not the clearest text to understand, not the easiest text to understand. And I think there's wisdom in carefully using other versions to bring clarity to the text. Um, maybe even to bring another perspective without changing the meaning of the text. Use it like a commentary, somewhat like a commentary. The potential danger with this is, over time, it will lead to losing the King James as the standard text that we probably all have today. It will lead to that. Done carefully, I see no problem with that. But done carefully and wisely. So while I would encourage a careful selection of various versions for personal use, I believe it is important for you as a congregation to have a standard text that this is what we use. This is what we are going to read over the pulpit. This is what we will use for Sunday school. I think it's important to have a standard text that you agree on. When you go home and have your devotions, Use uh, use another version if you if you need to, but as a standard text for a church is important. And I'm going to go this far as to say I think it's wise for a broader body such as a fellowship or a conference to have an agreed upon text. You may not agree with me on that, but I see great wisdom in that. We are we intermingle enough that I think there's wisdom in that, and it needs to be done by design. 
or it will be done by default and it won't be the same. Consider that. As a church, I think it's absolutely necessary and as a, as a fellowship, I think it's wise to have a translation that we hold in common. So here's why a congregation should have a standard text. I think there's tremendous value in opening your Bible and turning to the passage and reading along with whoever is, is preaching or teaching or leading. There's tremendous value in that. There's tremendous value in having your children do that. And it's difficult for me to follow along in my King James Bible when someone is reading from the New Living. It's difficult. I can do it, but it's difficult. If you have an 8, 9, 10-year-old, they're not going to be able to do it. They can't follow along with that. They may as well leave their Bible closed. And what is that conveying? I also think it helps bring a sense of unity among the church, the local congregation, to have a, a standard text that you've agreed on. This is what we, for a public reading in church, this is our standard text. Where this gets difficult is when you have, and I'm going to call it a traditional Mennonite church that probably uses the King James text but has maybe a kids club or an outreach or, or something else somewhere. Should the King James Version be used in a kids club among children who seldom hear the Bible, much less King James English? Is King James the best choice? In many cases, probably not. So then we have the King James at the home church, something else, and I know some of you have other uh, urban or churches outreaches in within a city or within another group that it doesn't work. So you've got the King James at home, you've got another version there. How do you bring that together? How do you explain that? I'm going to leave that as a question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Something you have to work through carefully and wisely. Before I move on to the last part of this, hear me carefully. Whatever you do, be respectful of those who do not share your views on the virgins. There is probably someone in your church who is just as passionate about not, I'm, I'm using the King James, about not using it as you are about using it. And, and many times that can boil down into more of a personal conflict than the issue itself. So be respectful of those whose views may vary on that. So how do you decide? How are we supposed to decide from 450 versions what is okay, what is not okay, Acts 17.11 says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and... What's, what's next? Search the scriptures. That is how we know. For internal consistency within the word of God, that's first. That has to be first. Search the scriptures. We're told to study so we can rightly divide the word of truth. But some things to consider beyond that are what is the textual 
basis? What was used in translating this? If it was a paraphrase of something, you are ablaze with beauty, yes, 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 and you're using that as your translation basis, uh, not a good idea. Consider what the basis is. What's the source material? What was the method of translation? And this might be more of a preference, but was it word for word? Was it thought for thought? There are some versions that call themselves version of, of the Bible that I don't think should even be versions of the Bible. They shouldn't even be considered a Bible. They could be considered a book, but not a Bible. It's a, maybe a paraphrase at best. Another thing to consider, does it have any peculiarities? Is it historically consistent? Are there words, phrases, passages missing or added to the text? If so or if not, find out why. Be alert to a liberal bent. Make sure it's accurately portraying the truth and not just pleasing to your ear. When deciding on a translation, don't make the judgment based on the translation you are currently using. I have heard and I probably have used this phrase. This version has many verses that are totally omitted. And when I do that, I'm basing it off of the King James. Don't do that. Don't base your judgment off of the Bible you are currently using. Base It, it means work. It means you're going to have to dig, and it means work. But possibly those phrases that are missing shouldn't have even been there in the first place. So is that a bad thing? Probably not. All right, so where am, where am I? I'll tell you where I am. I have a slight preference towards the King James Version Bible because it's what I'm most familiar with. It's, it's memorizable. It's what I have in my head. I grew up with it, and so I some of the terms or phrases that we don't use today, I don't stumble on like someone who who wouldn't have ever heard that language. That's why I like it. I'm, I think it's a good, sound Translation. However, I see the time coming when there will be a shift away from the King James Version and it will be on my watch, I think. Because the language of King James is getting harder to understand. Well, the language isn't getting harder, but our understanding is getting more difficult to understand it. And so I see that there will probably be a shift sometime during my I call it my watch because I feel somewhat responsible for this and you should too. I don't want to live with my head in the sand. I'd like decisions to be made deliberately and not by default. So because of that, I want to commit myself to making wise decisions, wise choices, so that we can preserve a conservative Anabaptist presence. (coughs) 